Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice, and I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hometown. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1820, the well-known British writer Sidney Smith mocked the United States for its lack of culture and sophistication. In the four quarters of the globe, who reads an American book, or goes to an American play, or looks at an American picture or statue? This was a common sentiment at the time. America was a young country, barely 40 years old, and most Europeans viewed it as a kind of lowbrow hillbilly backwater. According to the National Park Service website, for decades the nation suffered the embarrassment of a shortage of recognized cultural achievements. Unlike established European countries, which traced their origins far back into antiquity, the United States lacked a long artistic and literary heritage. The absence of reminders of the human past, including castles, ancient ruins, and cathedrals on the landscape, further alienated American intellectuals from a cultural identity. It may be shocking to hear now, but the feeling among many European intellectuals at the time was that there was nothing to learn from America and nothing to see here. I mention this because taunts like the one you just heard from Sidney Smith were partially responsible for the development of our national parks. Americans were increasingly sick of hearing Europeans brag about old buildings and ancient literature. We realized that while you couldn't just manufacture a medieval castle, nor could you just decide to have a redwood forest or an epic desert moonscape like Death Valley. You either have these things or you don't. And when it came to singular gorgeous landscapes, America had more than its share. According to the NPS, its response to constant barbs about these deficiencies from old world critics, by the 1860s many thoughtful Americans had embraced the wonderlands of the West as replacements for man-made marks of achievement. The agelessness of monumental scenery, instead of the past accomplishments of Western civilization, was to become the visible symbol of continuity and stability in the new nation. Rather than envying the architecture, 
and cultural heritage of Europe, Americans began to compete with that heritage and change the rules of the game with their aggressive preservation of outdoor spaces. In the words of the NPS, when national parks were first established, protection of the environment, as now defined, was the least of preservationists' aims. Rather, America's incentive for the national park idea lay in the persistence of a painfully felt desire for time-honored traditions in the United States. So, monumentalism, not environmentalism, was the driving impetus behind early national park conservation. Ancient environments, like the one at Death Valley, were older than the most ancient ruins that Europe could offer. The Roman Colosseum in Italy is 2,000 years old. Death Valley predates that by 1.7 billion years. In breathtaking outdoor spaces like these, America had found its trump card. And so, in 1872, the American geologist and surveyor, Ferdinand van der Weyer Hayden, would say, We pass with rapid transition from one remarkable vision to another, each unique of its kind and surpassing all others in the known world. The intelligent American will one day point on the map to this remarkable district with a conscious pride that has not its parallel on the fact of the globe. The term often used for this movement is scenic nationalism. The last time we talked, I brought it up with our friends over at More Than Just Parks, Jim and Will Pattes. I would say that calls to mind when we first started promoting these national parks, these original national parks. Back in the turn of the century, the campaign was called See America First because we had all these Americans going overseas to see Europe's grand cathedrals and to see the Swiss Alps and to see all these things, famous landmarks, monuments, what have you. And Europe, and I think it was FDR called Glacier National Park, the American Alps. Why go to Europe when you have these absolutely incredible places here in the United States? And so they worked with the railroads to do this campaign called See America First. That was that scenic nationalism, trying to get people to spend your tourism dollars here at home, but also take pride in these incredible places that we have here in the U.S. I'm actually in Rome right now. And just walking around the streets here, you do have this history, but it's funny because you chat with folks and they say, oh, but in America, you don't have that kind of history. It's not that old. I say, actually, the history that we have is a lot older. It's just not human history. And it is this great natural heritage. And for us, I think one of America's greatest exports, and Jim and I talk about this a lot, is national parks. It's a 100% American idea that we have shared with the rest of the world. Americans were the first to save land for conservation's sake, which is just an incredible thing and a gift for future generations. And so it is interesting. If you want older human history, we do have native sites which aren't as talked about, but the difference between a place like Europe, and they do have national parks here now, and America is you don't find like civilization artifacts all over these places. They are pristine, conserved for all time, and that I think is very special. The Sea American First campaign that Jim mentioned was so aggressive and so nationalistic that it spawned a satirical musical by Cole Porter, titled simply, See America First. But precisely because America was so fiercely proud of its own culture at the time, combined with the fact that it wasn't very good, the musical was a massive flop. The only recording I was able to find was a revised version 
performed by amateurs at the University of Pennsylvania. See America first, said he, see it in all its beauty. See America duty free, America's juicy, fruity. See America first, cried he, outflow a gold be throttled. No champagne do I guarantee, unless it is New York bottled. Double your pleasure with Uncle Sam, for double the price you can see Boulder Dam. See America coast to coast, land of the Fulbright scholars. See the country I love the most, America needs your dollars. Oh, come now, Mr. President, that's a hell of an attitude. Why, without American tourists traveling abroad, the economy of half a hundred countries would collapse. The national park that we're talking about today, Death Valley, didn't become part of the national park system until 1933, 15 years after Porter's play. But this theme of exceptionalism is fitting. Death Valley may not have castles or elaborate histories, but it's the hottest place on earth. Initially, this valley was protected as a national monument, and in 1994, Congress expanded and redesignated it as Death Valley National Park. Today, it is not only the hottest, but also the lowest and driest of all the national parks, as well as the largest park in the lower 48. I mentioned this theme of exceptionalism to Jim Burnett, suggesting that it's become a central part of the park's marketing. It certainly is. The, in fact, the park makes a point of that on their website. They're the, they're the hottest and the driest and the lowest elevation place in the country and the largest national park in the U.S. outside of Alaska. And some of those titles probably add to the appeal for the park, and that's reason enough for some people to go visit. But in the case of Death Valley, they also create some extra factors that, that people really need to be aware of if they're planning a visit. So my number one tip for any park visit is always to be sure you get current information about the park and things that are to do or the things appropriate for you to do. And also you want to be sure that if you have something particularly in mind that's really on your to-do list, you want to be sure that that facility is going to be open at the time that you're going for your visit. And what's the weather likely to be there during your visit? And in the Death Valley, we'll talk about that in a second. The weather is certainly a factor more so there than perhaps other places. But a good place to start trying to get that information is checking the official park website. As soon as you start planning your trip, just take a look and see what's there. Search online for the park's name and then look for the listing that includes the term nps.gov and you're on the official site. I know there's a lot of great places on the internet for information about parks and certainly you ought to use as many of those as you can but the reason i suggest checking the official site at least as part of your planning is that's the best place to get some recent updates about some changes that may have come up on short notice maybe some major road construction is underway that might affect your trip so when you go to the website for the first time for the park website right below the large photo you'll see a link that's called alerts and if you click on that alerts link if there's something really important going on in the park for you to know then that'll come up there and it's a good example right now for death valley one of the key attractions for a lot of people there is a place that the official name is the death valley ranch but usually people just call it scotty's castle it's really just an intriguing building but unfortunately a record flood server is going to wipe out 
eight miles of the road that leads to Scottish Castle and it took out the water system and the sewer system and the power. So it's been a long process getting that back together. Fortunately, the good news is that Scottish Castle itself wasn't damaged, but a lot of infrastructure was. And so they're still working on that. They hope to have it finished maybe sometime in 2023. Perhaps even they'll have some of it open for limited tours maybe this coming winter. So that's an example. It pays to check the park website. You may not know that if you just look for a general site, what to do at Death Valley, you may say, well, go to Scottish Castle. But if that site hasn't been updated, then you drive in and ready to go to Scottish Castle. Well, here's a big barricade. Sorry, you can't get there. So that's one reason why I really stress check and see what's going on and check that park website for those updates to be sure you don't get there and have a disappointment. Another really great place to get information on the Parks website for Death Valley is they have something called the Death Valley Visitor Guide. And they put out a, a winter edition and a summer edition. It's got a lot of great information about places to go and things to do. And the easiest way to find that online is just search for the term Park Newspaper Death Valley National Park. And that should take you to the link where you can get to it, download that. And my suggestion is go ahead and download that and save it on your phone or your tablet before you leave home, because you're probably not going to have access to the web or a cell phone signal once you get to the park. But if you have it on your device, you can pull that information back up when you get there. We mentioned the weather being a factor at Death Valley, and that's certainly true. And that's my second tip is don't be surprised about the weather if you go during the summertime. Death Valley is a fascinating place from late fall into early spring, but it, with the exception of a few high elevation places, in my opinion, it's just not a great place to go in the summertime. I checked their records and one summer had 40 days when the temperature was over 120 degrees. And that's measured in the shade, by the way, that's how they officially check the temperature. The temperature doesn't cool down enough where you can sleep comfortably at night unless you're in a place with air conditioning. I realize some people are fascinated by weather extremes. That's just kind of their thing and they want to get a photo of a big digital thermometer they have out in front of the furnace creek visitor center that shows the current temperature and there's even a name for this activity in the park they call it heat tourism and that's a big deal for some folks and if that's your main reason to go to the death valley well, well go and have a great time but otherwise my advice is to go between about late october and late march and even then, check the forecast before you leave home. Be sure that there's not some big surprise in what's going on. If you go during the more moderate season of the year, there's just a lot more options for things that you can do. And you'll be a lot safer. And you won't be miserably hot and thinking, okay, so I, who had a great idea for this trip after all? And I say that on the basis of some experience. Part of my park service years were spent at Lake Mead National Recreation Area, a place called Willow Beach, Arizona. And we had an official weather service monitoring station there. And a lot of days in summer, we were only a few degrees cooler than Death Valley. The cooler is kind of relative when it's 123, 124. So I know what that weather is like. And I can say there's just a lot of things you can't do safely in the outdoors in that kind of weather. So think about what you want to do on your trip. Some of those numbers, like 120 in the shade, are stunning. But having just been there... I can say that at times it feels even hotter. You have to basically force feed yourself water the entire time you're out to compensate for the huge amount of water 
just evaporating through your skin. I was curious as to how cool it gets in the winter, and I asked Jim if he knew. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. My recollection is as you get in as you get into the fall, the highs are going to be more in in the eighties, lows in the fifties. You get on into October, November, you're going to have highs in the sixties and seventies, lows down in the thirties and forties sometimes. So it's really very pleasant. It's rare for them to have freezing temperatures there, unless you get up in the high country. There are some places you can get up 4,000, 5,000 feet high, and that's going to be a different story in the wintertime. But the places the majority of the people want to go, the weather normally is going to be really pleasant there, again, to say late October into late March. It was fun to experience the extreme temperatures that I did. But if I go back, it will be in the winter. The hot season is so radically inhospitable that even without knowing the stats, I could guess that it was one of the most dangerous national parks. It absolutely is. And that's one of the things that the park stresses. It's People say, well, it's a dry heat. And that is true. It feels, it's dry like it coming out of the oven. That's my description of it from my days at, at the Willow Beach. And the problem is because it is so dry, you're perspiring vigorously. Your body's trying to cool off, but it evaporates so quickly. You don't even realize you're sweating. And so what happens, you can very quickly get seriously dehydrated. And so the key is you've got to really stay up on your beverages. A combination of water and one of the sports drinks that has electrolytes is really the best bet. And the clue is if you're thirsty, drink. That's your body trying to tell you that you need to catch up. The park staff at Death Valley says a good rule of thumb is you need a gallon a day minimum of beverages in order to keep, keep yourself healthy. And just a clue about how hot it is and how that affects daily life there. There's a, a story the park staff shares about, about the water in your house or in the building there. The ground is so hot there, it acts basically like a giant solar hot water heater. And so the pipes running underground through the ground get so hot that when it comes into the building, it's almost so hot you can't use it. And so they, to adjust for this, if you live there, what you do in the summertime, you turn off your hot water heater so it's not heating water. And you use it as a storage reservoir. So you let the water come in from outside. You store it in your hot water heater. If it sits there long enough, it'll gradually start to cool down until it becomes at least tepid. And so if you want tepid water, you open your hot water tap and you get tepid water. Now, if you want hot water, you open the cold water tap. And the water coming straight in from outside through your cold water line will be almost too hot to use. So if you want cold water, you've got to store it in the refrigerator somewhere. But I thought that was telling that the cold water coming in becomes hot water during the, in the summertime if you live there. In fact, they actually set a record at Furnace Creek was the main developed area there. In July of 1972, when the air temperature was a relatively cool 128 degrees there, they measured the ground temperature is at 201 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just below boiling, for boiling water. So that's just a hint about the, how hot it is. And it's key if you go there in the summer, you really have to use good judgment about where you go and what you do. The park website has some really excellent tips that you really have to look at carefully if you're going to go there during the summertime. If you Google Death Valley National Park Safety, you'll find a good list of stuff. But some key points, if you're traveling there, stay on the paved roads. Don't, they have a thousand miles of roads in Death Valley. Most of them are just dirt, four-wheel drive kind of things. But in the summertime, stay on the pavement. The reason is if you have a breakdown, at least you're likely to be spotted 
that way and somebody can get you some help. These days, most of us have come to rely on cell phones. We have a flat tire, run out of gas, run down, no problem, grab your cell phone and call AAA and they're right there. There are very few places at Death Valley where you can establish a cell signal. And so that means if you have a breakdown, there's no way for you to call for help. So stay on the paved roads there during the summertime. If something happens, then somebody who's going to come along eventually, they're going to have to drive someplace in Sandward also that you're there because they, they can't get a cell signal either. So that's really important. If you get off on a side road and you break down and there's no cell signal, you're on your own. And you just don't want that to happen during the summertime. The, the other thing you want to be careful about there is using the GPS navigation. Like most of us now, I rely on that, like that app on the phone. It's a great way to find directions in a place you're not familiar with. But the park stress is, please do not use GPS to navigate at Death Valley. It's such a hazard. They've got a big warning, actually, in capital letters. If you're online, you see something caps, it's like somebody's yelling at you, I guess is the etiquette, and they're yelling at you about this on the park website. Don't rely on your GPS. It says, GPS is so unreliable in around the parks. Travelers have been directed to the wrong location on the dead end or closed roads. And so they stress you always carry an old-fashioned printed map with you just to validate. If your GPS says turn here, check it on your printed map and be sure that's really what you want to do. By all means, if you're following GPS, this is a good rule of thumb anywhere, but especially in places like Death Valley. If GPS says, turn here, and they're trying to turn you off the pavement onto a dirt road, or turn here, and there's a locked gate, or maybe a gate that's closed, and you say, well, I can go through there. It looks like a shortcut. Don't do that in a place like Death Valley, unless your intention to begin with was to get to a really remote spot, and you had some directions about how to do that. Some search and rescue groups in parts of the West have even coined the phrase death by GPS because people have been led astray and didn't survive the experience. So that's important to know. Paper maps are old school, but this is a situation where it could be your friend. So don't hesitate to fall back to the old days and don't be a robot and just follow GPS blindly if it tries to take you someplace that doesn't look like it makes sense. I remember something similar happening to us a number of times in these parks. Before we knew it, we were off the trail entirely. It's so easy to get used to trusting GPS with all navigation that it sometimes takes a moment to realize that it's leading us into trouble. Another thing we realized when in Death Valley was how accessible most everything was from the main road. In many parks, extensive off-road hiking is encouraged and even necessary. If you are frequently wandering far from your car in Death Valley, you are probably doing it wrong. Yeah, even if you go in the summer, the good news is most of the park's really best attractions you can get to on a paved road. So even if you're there and the weather's nice, you're just nervous about getting off the pavement, you can have a great trip and see a lot of super places just by staying on the pavement. A good base operations, if you go there, if you're going to stay there overnight, and I guess you can make a day trip to Death Valley. It's a couple of three hours from Vegas up there to drive and turn around and go back. But if you're going to stay overnight, the kind of the key place for most people is either at Furnace Creek, which is their main developer. There is a, there's a campground there and kind of a high dollar lodge and a restaurant, and a gas station store. And just up the road, about 30 miles from Furnace Creek is a place called Stovepipe Wells that also has camping and, and other facilities. Just remember, if you're going to go there during the nice time of year that I'm suggesting from mid-fall to spring. That's when everybody else wants to go too. So be sure you jump in there and get your reservations well in advance 
and uh, don't wait for the last minute. You'll find that you're not in a spot. Some of the great places that you can go, one of the popular spots is called Dante's View. It's about a 45-minute drive from Furnace Creek and gives you an outstanding 360-degree view from a mile up above the valley. You're up 5,000 feet. Furnace Creek is below sea level, so that's quite an impressive perspective. But I will give you one little heads up about the road to the top. If you're uneasy about mountain driving, the road that goes up to Dante's view, it's the last part of the drive has got a lot of really sharp hairpin turns, and it's really steep. I haven't verified it, but several sources say that the grade the last half mile is 13 to 14%. That's a really steep road. So just be aware if, if that concerns you, maybe that's not the spot for you to go. And if you've got a big RV, anything longer than 25 feet, can't make that drive because you can't make the hairpin turns. If you're towing a trailer, there's a parking lot at the bottom of the of the hill that you can drop your trailer and go ahead and make that bet if you want to. But Dante's View gets some really high reviews on a lot of travel websites. It's a great place to see a sunrise or a sunset. Another interesting kind of phenomenon there, if the weather is good from Dante's view, if you look out to the western horizon, then you can see Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the lower 48 states. If you look down below Dante's view, you can see a place called Badwater there in the park, which is the lowest place in the United States at 282 feet below sea level. So from that one spot, you can see the highest place in America and the lowest place in America. Just kind of a little interesting video trivia about that. And you can go to Badwater. That's another one of the places people like to go. It's a good place to get a photo, a photo op. It's about 30 minutes on a paved road from Furnace Creek. If you go there during the summertime, the recommended approach is drive up. You can see the sign that says Badwater, lowest place in the United States. Take a photo of roll down the window, get a picture and keep your air conditioner cranked on, but don't spend a lot of time there. There's a nice trail there. More moderate weather, you can take a walk out on a boardwalk and go out to the salt flat and kind of have it a little more up close and personal. And the one other really popular spot for sunrise and sunset photos at Death Valley is called Zabriskie Point. I tried to look at a lot of other sites just to get people's take on spots in the park and one expert photographer, he calls it the most spectacular sunrise location in the park and maybe in all of the desert southwest. That's a pretty high recommendation. It's only a 15-minute drive from Furnace Creek on Highway 190. But again, just be aware that a lot of other folks have read those same reviews. And if you want to get there and get a really great spot to take a photo, then get there a little bit early and allow yourself time to, to find a good spot. Knowing Jim's gifts for stories that are also teaching moments. I was sure he'd have one for Death Valley. I do. In fact, I took my own advice. My wife and I went there several years ago, and we went in February. And since we had a pop-up trailer with no air conditioning, we sure were not going to go in the summertime. And for the most part, February worked out well for us. But I did get a reminder that the average is not the same as always when it comes to the weather. Woke up the second morning and the canvas tent on our pop was kind of flapping around in the wind. I said, that sounds kind of weird. I looked outside and there was a nice light rain was blowing sideways in that the wind at Death Valley. And so I just out of curiosity, I checked later. On average, Death Valley only gets any rain at all about 20 days a year. And on average, three of those are in February. Still pretty good odds, but we happened to catch it on a rainy day. And a little later in the morning, I got over to the conference station. There was a guy in there who was the 
classic example of not a happy camper. He had a plastic bag from the grocery store kind of wrapped around his head as trying to keep the rain off. And he was muttering about the, the desert and where's the sun. And I never thought to bring an umbrella raincoat. This is the driest place in America, right? And, and I could see he was looking for a sympathetic ear. So I encouraged him to talk a little bit. And it turns out that his day really got off to even a worse start than that. He had encouraged his wife to try camping for the first time on this trip. For one thing, it's raining in Death Valley. That never happens. But even more important, they didn't have any camping equipment. So they borrowed some from a friend, got in there after dark, and the light from their headlights and their cell phone flashlight, they couldn't figure out how to get the tent set up. Tents are a lot more complicated than they used to be. It is not a pup tent anymore. And so they spent the night sleeping in their compact sedan, and neither he nor his wife were a happy camper at that point. And so that that brings me to a tip that I do mention a lot of times when I'm talking about here are some things to think about if you're going to make a, an outdoor trip. And that is, if you're setting up a tent for the first time, then don't be surprised that more assembly might be required than you expect in order to squeeze that tent into the smallest possible box on the shelf at your outdoor store. All those poles are broken down into a lot of smaller pieces that have to be reassembled. And sometimes they're different sizes and they're different shapes. And it's not intuitive, obvious how it goes together. And if you borrow that tent from somebody, the odds are pretty good. Those instructions are no longer included. So I could understand this guy in the dark trying to figure out how to get this thing together. I couldn't figure it out. So my advice is, if you've either borrowed some equipment, whether it's a tent or whether it's a $200,000 RV, before you ever leave home, be sure you know how to operate it, how to set it up. Just because it's new, don't trust that it's going to be there. My wife and I, in fact, bought a tent a few years ago. We were going to get back into camping for a while. And I think I took my own advice. It was a fairly big tent. We want to have some room to spread out and be comfortable. Got it all spread out on the floor. And one of those 26 pieces of tent poles was not there. Brand new right out of the box. Now, we were sitting there at home. And so I was able to pick up the phone and call the number for customer service. And the lady was very nice and apologetic. She said, no problem. I'm very sorry about that. We'll stick you a replacement piece in the mail and be there at three to five business days. Well, that was all well and good because I was sitting at home. If I was in the campground trying to set that tent up, had that missing piece coming in three to five business days, it was not going to do me much good. So that's a, a really key tip, I think. And it's always amazed me how many people I encountered during my 30 years as a ranger who ran into that kind of situation. I'd see them struggling with this tent. They've got all these things laid out and scratching the heads. And I'd seen that enough. I could usually stop by and say, well, I think this part, probably part A goes into part B and we could get it figured out for them. But that's something that seems to get past a lot of folks. So no matter what it is, if it's new or unfamiliar to you, or if you borrowed it, give it a trial run before you leave home. I would potentially save you a lot of misery. Now, in terms of the couple at Death Valley, I will say that morning the sun came out and the rain stopped and we were rewarded because we looked up the Panamint Mountains on the rise and they were all snow-capped, which is really a neat thing to see in Death Valley. And they apparently figured out the tent. Once they had some daylight, uh, we got back later in the afternoon and there was a tent all set up, standing tall and proud in their campsite. And I gave them some bonus points to silent to myself for sticking out. I was glad it worked out for them. But if you're going to make a trip, there's a tip for you. Jim's parting thoughts. 
I hope Death Valley is a place you'll have a chance to go. Again, just plan ahead, think about it, do your homework in advance. As one friend commented to me about Death Valley, it says it's a really cool place, but not in July. While Death Valley is best known for its hostility to living things, during some springs, the hills of the park blossom with wildflowers. A half inch of rainfall is needed for the seeds of these flowers to sprout, but once they do, they produce a gorgeous and unexpected panorama of gold, purple, pink, and white. But as Jim reminded me off air, most springs do not receive the necessary rainfall for these flowers to bloom. This is from the NPS website, quote, Death Valley is famous for its spectacular spring wildflower displays, but those are the exception, not the rule. Only under perfect conditions does the desert fill with a sea of gold, purple, pink, and white flowers. These tend to average once a decade, with the most recent superbloom years being 2016, 2005, and 1998. Although there are years where blooms are few, they are never totally absent. One of the strangest phenomena in all of the parks are the so-called sailing stones found on a part of the desert floor called the racetrack. Massive stones across this dry lake bed have left long, unmistakable trails in the dirt, with no evidence or explanation for what is propelling them across the ground. These rocks weigh hundreds of pounds, and some have traveled more than 1,500 feet, apparently on their own. They are clearly moving, and yet to this day, no one has ever seen or recorded them moving. Scientists believe that when the surface of the desert freezes, it is the wind that is driving them forward. I highly encourage you to look up images. It's really unique and really bizarre. Contrary to what you might expect, sand dunes are rare in Death Valley. But where you do find them, there is at times a singing sound coming out of them. It's a deep bass sound, similar to that of an Australian didgeridoo. It results from layers of sand sliding down the dunes, creating deep, resounding friction. This is actual audio. The sound you're hearing is actually coming from within the dunes themselves. Another unique feature of Death Valley is what is known as the Devil's Golf Course, and when I heard about it, I was genuinely looking forward to playing some golf. But it's not an actual course, it's a gigantic field of rock salt, with a texture like coral or jagged volcanic rock. It's full of holes that look like huge divots or golf holes, but the name actually comes from a 1930s guidebook that referred to the surface as something, quote, only the devil could play golf on. Lastly, there are fish in Death Valley, specifically a species of fish found nowhere else in the world. As the placard in the park reads, quote, the world's entire population of devil's hole pupfish lives in this one small hidden pool. In summer, where nutrients are abundant, pupfish eggs hatch. There may be as many as five to 600 pupfish here. In winter, the population dropped to 200 or fewer. At least while we were there, these pupfish looked like tiny translucent minnows, darting back and forth, chasing each other through the water. It was also said on another placard that this playful puppy-like behavior is where this fish got its name. But not everyone has been interested in these amazing geological and biological features. In his one-star review, Alex G. complained, Words that come to mind, bleak, desolate, 
absolutely devoid of any trees or shade. Visited here in late April and still hot as Satan's hot tub. Felt like a canyon-sized hot air balloon was on from 10 a.m. to 6 at night. Driving through, it's kind of surreal, almost like a desert planet. Only living things I saw were ants and flies. If this sounds intriguing, then by all means go. The name says it all. Andy H. has a similar beef. Not a fan of finding nothing in the middle of nowhere. It's like visiting a giant litter box. Stayed in the area for work. Four days there and found nothing new after about the first 10 minutes. The quote, resort, was a joke. How they get away with calling themselves a resort and charging an additional resort fee over their extortion rate is beyond me. I have stayed at an inner city Motel 6s that would have been an upgrade to their dingy, stinky rooms. No restaurants after about 7 p.m. and no bar service after 9 p.m. There is always a $2 mini bag of chips and $13 six-pack at the gas station. I spend a lot of time outdoors, camping, hiking, hunting, and traveling for work. I would never return here on purpose. Edmund D. piled on. Death Valley is a desert crap hole. My word, not his. Like looking at dirt and hot weather? This place is for you. And finally, this review from David S. No one died while we were here. Very misleading name. It should be lower. Too much sand. All the stars at night made it harder to see the Little Dipper. In the next episode, we'll be heading to the Lake Mead Recreation Area. Thanks for joining. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.